some words from the prophet Micah. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth, and the rest of his people return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. This morning's reading is from Luke 2, verses 16 to 24, 39 to 40 in the Good News Bible. It's to be found on page 76. What happened next? So the shepherds hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and saw the baby lying in the manger. When the shepherds saw him, they told them what the angel had said about the child. All who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said. Mary remembered all these things and thought deeply about them. The shepherds went back singing praises to God for all they had heard and seen. It had just been as the angel had told them. A week later, when the time came for the baby to be circumcised, he was named Jesus, the name which the angel had given him before he had been conceived. The time came for Joseph and Mary to perform the ceremony of purification as the law of Moses commanded. So they took the child to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be dedicated to the Lord. They also went to offer a sacrifice of a pair of doves or two young pigeons, as required by the law of the Lord. When Joseph and Mary had finished doing all that was required by the law of the Lord, they returned to their hometown of Nazareth in Galilee. The child grew and became strong. He was full of wisdom, and God's blessings were upon him. The second reading is Matthew 2, verses 1 to 15, from the Good News Bible, page 4. Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem in Judea during the time when Herod was king. Soon afterward, some men who studied the stars came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the baby born to be the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it came up in the east, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard about this, he was very upset, and so was everyone else in Jerusalem. He called together all the chief priests and the teachers of the law and asked them, Where will the Messiah be born? In the town of Bethlehem of Judea, they answered, for this is what the prophet wrote. Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are by no means the least of the leading cities of Judah. For from you will come a leader who will guide my people Israel. 
So Herod called the visitors from the east to a secret meeting and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem with these instructions. Go and make a careful search for the child, and when you find him, let me know, so that I too may go and worship him. And so they left, and on their way they saw the same star they had seen in the east. When they saw it, how happy they were, what joy was theirs. It went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. They went into the house, and when they saw the child with his mother Mary, they knelt down and worshipped him. They brought out their gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh, and presented them to him. Then they returned to their country by another road. Since God had warned them in a dream not to go back to Herod, after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph and said, Herod would be looking for the child in order to kill him. So get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt and stay there until I tell you to leave. Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and left during the night for Egypt, where he stayed until Herod died. This was done to make come true what the Lord had said through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. Thanks be to God. Sunday that follows Christmas is one of those rather strange Sundays and it's one that I usually take off I have to confess it's quite unusual for me to be leading worship on the Sunday immediately following Christmas but it's good and I'm glad to be here there are two Sundays in the year that share the same name two low Sundays one is the Sunday after Easter and one is the Sunday after Christmas. And that name recognises the fact that it can all feel a bit flat when we get past the big feast, the big festival. We've eaten most of the turkey, although Ken hasn't. We've seen most of the repeats on television, Morecambe and Wise, for the goodness knows how many of time. And all too soon, the holiday will be over, and, well, you'll be back to work, I'm just about to have a week off. But it's that sense of it's over, and... It's also in the church a kind of an in-between time. We've had the celebration of the birth of Jesus and the shepherds have come, but we haven't yet got to Epiphany and the celebration of the coming of the wise ones from the East. I don't know if any of you have ever been into a Roman Catholic church or a high Episcopal, if there's such a thing as a high Episcopal church, a high Anglican church for those of us from south of the border. But if you go into such a church, you would find that the nativity scene at the moment had no kings on it. And if you looked carefully around the church, you might find them on a windowsill or a table, still journeying down the side of the church because they won't get there. The nativity scene won't be completed until Epiphany. And in fact, that nativity scene won't get packed away on the 12th day of Christmas, as we will, 
They will leave it there until February when they celebrate the presentation of Jesus in the temple. They kind of slow it all down. The truth is that for your average Baptist, and in some ways we're all pretty average Baptists whether we like it or not, the church year and its liturgical flow is not something that we get too worried about. We like to have the freedom to explore those parts of the Bible that, that we choose under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And we like to have the opportunity sometimes to go into depth into a book or a theme rather than have somebody outside telling us that this week we will read this passage. And that's a great strength but it carries with it a great weakness because it can actually allow us to pick and choose and avoid the things we don't like or the things that challenge us a little bit too much or the things that don't quite fit with our pet ideas. So today, on this Sunday that sits between Christmas and Epiphany, it seemed to me a good idea that we take a little bit of time looking at the two gospel stories of Christmas and playing a little bit with that. Now it could be that you're all really well versed in biblical history or it could be that you don't know any. But it seemed right just to spend a few moments reminding ourselves of the origins of the book we call the Bible because it didn't drop from heaven neatly published and bound in English. That might be a shock but it didn't, so sorry about that. It was put together over many, many years, and in fact it wasn't until the 4th century that scholars and wise people said, these are the books that we believe God has inspired. And these other books, actually, we don't think God has fully inspired them. And that's why we sometimes hear about things like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas that have been sort of in the news over the last few years, why the Da Vinci Code book and film got people well, either irritated or excited, depending on their viewpoint. But for the first 400 years, Christians would have only had some books of the Bible. And in fact, for the first 100 years, they didn't have any. Because there were people who'd still been alive when Jesus walked the earth. And they would tell the story of Jesus to other people. Now there are all kinds of theories about which order the Gospels were written in and who copied which from whom. But it's worth reminding ourselves, out of the four Gospels, only two have a Christmas story, or what we would call a Christmas story. Mark just isn't interested in Jesus as a child. He starts with Jesus' baptism and takes it from there. And John, which interestingly nearly didn't make it into the Bible, they thought it was a bit iffy 1,600 years ago, 1,700 years ago, John takes a very different approach and thinks of Jesus as the word made flesh. And so for him, stories about babies in Bethlehem are not terribly important. But we have two, Matthew and Luke, that give us the story of the birth of Jesus. And I've printed them out for you. And I know we're not very often having bits printed out. And there are bits in different colours to highlight some of the things that are sort of interesting about those two accounts. Now, scholars generally think that Matthew was written before Luke. 
and Luke did a bit of copying, that would almost fit with what Luke says himself at the beginning of his gospel. But we're going to take them Luke first because that's where we usually start when we have our Christmas services. Luke is the only person who talks about Gabriel's visit to Mary, a young peasant girl, of her visit to Elizabeth, a devout and elderly Jewess who had reached old age with the disgrace of childlessness. We need to realise that these are very unimportant people in first century Jewish society. They were just women. Sorry about that, ladies, but, you know, that's how it was in those days. Women were just chattels, and if they displeased their husbands, even if they burnt the tea, they could be dismissed, just with a letter. Miraculously, and quite scandalously, both of these women became pregnant. Luke is also unique in having the birth story in a stable. Scholars and archaeologists tell us what a stable was like in those days. And it wasn't a wooden building, and it probably wasn't a cave, but most likely the ground floor of a two-story building. And from other hints in the story, it seems likely that that um, stable area, the ground floor of the building, was empty because the shepherds were out on the hills with the sheep, so it's reasonable to assume that the other animals were also out and about. So actually, we don't have a meaning keeper. I'm sorry about that. The meaning keeper is an invention who only grudgingly allowed the couple to use a filthy barn. Actually, we've got a householder whose guest room was probably already full up, making space for a couple of peasants in the one place they've got, the stable, the ground floor, the garage, if you like. I mean, some of these new three-story houses have a garage at the ground floor, and it's a bit like saying to some unexpected guests, I'll tell you what, I'll put you up in the garage. A manger is a very lowly bed, but it is safe. And it makes quite a good cot for a newborn baby. And then we get the shepherds. And again, this is unique in Luke's gospel. People needed lambs and sheep for their temple sacrifices, but caring for sheep, oh, that's a dirty job. And it could leave you ritually unclean. You wouldn't be allowed to take part in worship yourself. People had to travel a long way to come to the temple, and there was a kind of an industry grew up in breeding sheep for sacrifice. So somebody had to do it. It's that, that saying, isn't it? It's a dirty job, but someone's got to do it. And the shepherds guarded the sheep from wolves and thieves. And so it goes on through Luke. All the way through Luke's gospel, we get this clear emphasis on God's love for poor and marginalized people. He, more than any of the other gospel writers, chooses the stories about people who are sick, people who are children, people who are women, people who are poor, people who are foreign, and people described as sinners. This is the emphasis which Luke shares us under God's inspiration about Jesus and so about God. And it's really interesting that Luke is the only one that bothers to tell us anything about Jesus' childhood at all. And he goes straight into what happened next. A week after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph took their baby to the priest to be circumcised. 
really important ritual that brought the baby boy into the covenant of Judaism, fulfilling the law of Moses. And that's really important, that insight into the authentic humanity of Jesus. We talk so much about his humanity and his divinity, and take it for granted, but as a human baby boy born into a Jewish family, he needed to be circumcised. He has human parents who are determined to do what is right by him and to bring him up in the faith. What Luke doesn't tell us is whether they were still living in the stable at this point. A week's gone by. Are they still in the stable or have they moved into the house or another house? We don't know. And then we move on another month. If you know your Jewish law well, or your Old Testament, your Leviticus well, you will know that the purification period for a boy was 30 days and a girl was 60. We'll not go into why that might be, but that's the reality. A month has gone by, and Mary and Joseph are still in Jerusalem, and they take Jesus back to the temple to make the necessary sacrifices to redeem him as their firstborn, and for Mary to be made clean and welcomed back into the worshipping community. And then they go back to Nazareth, 80-mile journey back up to the north of the country, which would have taken many, many days. And here they bring up Jesus, their son. And we hear nothing more until he's 12 years old, when Luke picks up the tale again. So that's Luke's story about Jesus. We'll now look at Matthew and see what he has to say. And I just want you for a minute, it is not easy, to pretend that you didn't hear any of what I just said. You don't know anything about Luke's gospel. All you've got is Matthew's gospel. We have a baby born in Bethlehem in a miraculous way. But it's a very different story. The main characters in this story are all men. Joseph is the one who has dreams that are written down for people to read about. And it's educated, wealthy, most likely foreign men. Religious thinkers and powerful rulers who get mentioned. We don't get any story about circumcision or purification and a return to Nazareth. We hear about an escape to Egypt to escape a massacre by a power-crazed king. It's a very, very different story. Why is it a very different story? Because Matthew, inspired by God, was talking to a different group of people who needed to hear different things. Most people think that Matthew was written predominantly for a Jewish community, unlike Luke, which was apparently written, we think, for Gentiles. People who would see in Jesus the fulfilment of what Moses began. And so it's important in Matthew that Jesus is identified right at the start as the king of the Jews. If we think ahead to Easter, what was written on the cross above Jesus' head? The king of the Jews. And for Jewish readers, there's an incredible surprise in what Matthew says because he has foreigners, Gentiles, 
who had very different religious perspectives coming to seek and find Jesus. And this is part of what Matthew needs to get his, his readers to understand, is this bringing in of the Gentiles to the covenant. The flight to Egypt, not on a Boeing 747, but according to tradition on a donkey, though we don't know that there was a donkey, is unique to Matthew. And the family stay in Egypt for a number of years until Herod dies, thus fulfilling a prophecy. Now, we're not going to get into the apparent mismatch between Luke and Matthew, because that's really not what I want to go today. But Matthew has us going with Jesus to Egypt. And Egypt's a very significant place for the Jews, because that was where Moses was raised up to rescue the people from the evil of that day. And so, by Jesus going to Egypt, the readers of this gospel would immediately think of Moses and understand that Jesus came to be like a new Moses, only more so. One of the themes that St. Paul picks up in his letter to the Hebrews. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And if you read on through Matthew's gospel, you will find a lot about the law and Jesus' teaching on the law in Matthew's Gospel. So we've got two Gospel stories that give us two very different accounts of the birth of Jesus. And then we have the Nativity play, which I adore. I love children's nativities. That somehow pull the two together and paper over the cracks to make one story. But actually, you know what? It isn't neatly one story, is it? We could tie ourselves into all sorts of knots. Some of the things I've highlighted for you on those uh, sheets in different colours, where were they? When did things happen? We can get into all kinds of confusion and miss the point if we're not careful. God speaks through each of these stories. Luke's interest is in poor people and ordinary people and marginalized people. He's very keen to remind us of the humanity of Jesus. So he needs people to know that he grew up as a child, developed physically and mentally in the way that all children do. For Matthew, it's the fulfillment of Moses that's important. And this Egyptian experience is really helpful for him in telling that side of things. And it's not that Matthew's right and Luke's wrong, or Luke's right and Matthew's wrong. It's not that they missed something out because they forgot about it. Neither did they make it up just to say what they wanted to say. We have two books, each inspired by God, through different people to give us two portraits, if you like, of Jesus. This is not a history book in the sense that we understand. It's not a biography in the kind that you go and buy in Waterstones or wherever. It's actually two pictures of Jesus, the Son of God. And if we get hung up on that doesn't fit with that and mm, which is right and which is wrong, we're missing the point of what God wants us to see. I don't know about you, but as I go around um, Uh, art gallery and look at different pictures of of the nativity story, I get different insights, get different things that stand out to me. And I think there's a bit of that going on here. We don't actually know what happened next 
for many of the characters in the story. There's this intriguing bit in Luke where the shepherds tell people all. All who heard it were amazed. Well, who is it the shepherds told? And what did the shepherds do for the next 30 years between Christmas and Calvary? Because we don't know. And what about the Magi when they went back to their own country? What difference did it make to them that they had encountered a child Christ in Bethlehem? Not what they had expected, perhaps. And the king of whom they had escaped and felt they shouldn't go back, what difference did it make to have met him? What difference does it make to us to have encountered the Christ of Christmas? What is it that God is showing to us as we engage afresh with the story of the birth of Jesus? What surprises us? What new insights does God give us? One of the things that always strikes me about Christians, it doesn't matter whether they're Baptists or Catholics or Orthodox or Anglican or Methodist or Presbyterian or anything else, is that we get kind of comfortable with what we think we know. And yet, if we're prepared to open ourselves to God and really engage with this stuff, there is so much more for us to learn. In the silences, in the gaps, in the questions that arise for us, God is still speaking. It's not a closed book. It's an open book. It's a living word, as Jesus was the living word in the most ultimate sense. God has got so much more to show us. So maybe as we move on from Christmas like the shepherds about whom we hear nothing else for a very long time, if ever, like the wise men who went back to their own land. Perhaps we need to ponder what we have seen and heard and discover the light and truth that God wants to break forth to us from his word. We come now to our prayers for others. Let's pray. Jesus was born to a peasant girl in a culture where women were little more than chattels, a sign that God values those who are seen by others as valueless. We pray for those who feel themselves to have little or no worth those whose self-esteem has been destroyed by bullying, abuse or illness. May they come to know themselves as loved by you. We pray for those who find themselves treated as little more than objects to be used and then cast aside. For those trapped in the sex industry. For those trafficked to plantations or factories for illegal immigrants working long hours for a pittance. May they find hope as we learn to love them as you do. Jesus was visited by shepherds 
men whose work forced them to the margins of society and excluded them from religious practice. We pray for those whose employment requires unsocial hours and unpleasant tasks. Often people who've not had the opportunities we take for granted for education or training. We thank you for the contribution they make to our lives and ask that we might learn to value them as you do. We pray for those who feel excluded from the church and more especially from your love because of their lifestyle choices. Grant us compassionate hearts and the willingness to engage in complicated contemplation of the diverse issues that challenge or threaten our comfort. Jesus was visited by Magi, possibly foreign academics, possibly astrologers or seers, certainly mysterious and exotic. We pray for all those who devote their lives to learning and researching, seeking meaning and understanding in a world of chaos and confusion. May their intellect be matched by wisdom and their curiosity be directed in ways of peace. We pray for those who travel far from home to study at the university on our doorstep, thinking especially of those who today sit in flats or hostels in a strangely quiet city. May they know your love expressed through ours. Jesus was forced to flee the evil whims of a despotic ruler and live as a refugee in a foreign land. We pray for those in positions of power, especially politicians and international leaders. Quell their desire for power and recognition and grant them wisdom and compassion for all people. We pray for those who seek asylum in our own nation who live as stateless refugees, wondering what will happen to them and to those they love. May they be shown justice and peace, being treated with dignity and given hope for the future. Jesus grew up in private, unseen by the gospel writers, hidden from the world. We pray for ourselves, people whose lives are ordinary and unobserved. People who try simply to live peaceably with those around us. People who believe and trust in your promises, yet sometimes struggle with the realities of life. People who need to go on growing and learning, yet fear losing what we value along the way. Grant to us the courage we need to grow in grace and the wisdom to be gospel people in a broken world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.